Welcome back, everyone, to this week's episode of If I Only Knew. Today, I'm here with my usual co-host, Fred, who's back after a little hiatus. Say hi, Fred. Hi, everybody. I understand last week's episode was one of our most popular because I wasn't here. So I'm back to uh, lower the bar again. Well, great to see you, Fred. I'm very excited for another chat. Um, today, we're going to be talking a little bit about how we think things have changed for young people, specifically around how um, the embracing of different identities has been engaged with across society over the last 10 or 20 or 30 years. And we're super lucky to be joined by a really special guest, Gabriel. Gabriel, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us just a tiny bit about who you are? Hi guys, Gabriel speaking. I am non-binary and my pronouns are they, them, there. And I'm very excited to join you guys. Thank you so much for being on board here. Fred and I are quite cis, het, white men. Uh, so it's wonderful to have a uh, different perspective as we are talking about identity. Um, we were spurred specifically by uh, Pride Month going on in America and around the world. Um, we wanted to really engage with this notion of change, I think, because I think that's the most interesting um, aspect of this for, for our podcast, dealing with what Fred has observed over you know his ageing process, um, his limited ageing process, sorry, Fred, and uh, what, what I'm feeling uh, at the moment as I grew up and what Gabriel can contribute as well. So Gabriel, you're kind of uh, firmly in the millennial generational category is that kind of right yeah i'd say so i think that's a fair fair statement and i'm probably on the younger end of that category so i think we've got a nice a nice breadth of uh of of, uh, ideas here um change is what we're kind of talking about and and change is like a difficult process because i think socially we think of change as somewhat linear we think of a change of like a progress from like a less good society to a more good society and i think there's two ways we should begin by problematizing that and the first is that what people define as a good society is different depending on who you are right um so there are some people who think it's a good thing that we might uh introduce more restrictive bans on um, gender conversion therapy or whatever and there are other people who say well that's a movement backwards and uh, I think so recognising change is like a linear process has some problems because people view different things as good um, and the other idea is that like society never moves linearly there's always stuff that goes to the side and things that don't quite happen so I think when we talk about change I want to th- I think I want to grab onto what like young people are feeling at the moment what, what it feels like to be of different identities in in our modern society particularly in the west and and some of maybe some of what the um consequences of our political and social actions are for those feelings so one of the things that we talked briefly about before we started was some of the big legislation that's being introduced at the moment um or, or proposed in america specifically the the beacon of the west if you like um around some quite restrictive or discriminatory or hurtful policies, I think, towards people with non-normative identities. Um, so, Fred, you were telling me about some kind of um, ban on drag queens or something. Can you can you articulate that for me? The, um, the unfortunate aspect is we tend to culturally get really invaded by um, America. And there are some aspects of that that I really love and there's some aspects of that that I think we've got to be really cautious of because we're a very different society. Australia is not uh, built on that puritanical religion um, that's very right-leaning religion that America speaks to quite often. So in America, there are these fantastic um, examples of a a cohort of right-wing culture. Um, And one of the the loudest voices at the moment is a lady lady by the name of Marjorie Taylor Greene who was instrumental in supporting things like the Don't Say Gay Bill, which is a state's rights issue where they're trying to remove the concept of um, gender diversity from uh, schools. So you're not allowed to talk about it. Um, And she's gone a step further and believes that drag queens and drag shows are effectively child abuse if you um, expose your kids to them. I have a real problem with this because one of our favourite family shows uh, for my seven-year-old daughter, my wife and myself, is RuPaul's Drag Race, which is a phenomenal show. Um, And I'm an avid consumer of drag content. My wife and I have tickets to no less than three events for the rest of the year. Um, And I find them really... We don't take our daughter to those because they're live events that are not appropriate for a seven-year-old, not because of the drag queens, but because of everybody else there. But I find this idea sort of fits into the same category as... um, this dog whistle to the right about trans athletes in sport Mm. and essentially what they what is happening despite the fact that um, the lgbtqi plus community has fought very hard for its recognition 
um, and to just be, they are still used as a punching bag and a fraction of a percent of a percent of a percent of athletes become front page news because it doesn't hurt the right to pick on them and it doesn't lose anybody from the left. So it's real virtual signal, virtue signaling in a way that I think is the, the most diabolical form of discrimination. Gabriel, you're here at, at, on your own personal journey and you, you've made it clear that you don't represent everybody in the LGBTQI plus community. But I'm keen to know when you see stuff like that on the headlines, how does that impact you? Yeah, it's, I think the, the mental fatigue for the, you know, a large of the community that are in under the, you know, alphabet mafia, if you will, um, <laughs> a lot of us have, you know, mental fatigue. And obviously, if you look at the, you know, the statistics of, you know, depression, self-harm and suicide rates, they're statistically high. And I think it's interesting because people, there was always this comment made when I was younger around, you know, what about the children? Think of the children, mm. which kind of very much felt by the time that I was an adolescent, you know, early adolescent, that very much meant what about the, I guess, not not me as a child. So like getting singled out kind of happened very young and understanding that there was us and then there was them as far as society went. And then realizing that you were just a child or you were just a teenager and why was my worth less than? So as you go on and you grow up and you're continuously, you know, abused by that verbally, physically, I don't know, sexually, whatever that whatever that looks like, there's less protections because you're seen as a lesser in society. So I think over time you just it kind of pushes down on the community and it kind of feels like we go two steps forward and then three steps back and you know Ultimately, as you said, we don't have enough numbers in purely ourselves to make, you know, a, pr a prominent impact politically. So without allies, we, an allyship, we really have nothing to go, go on without, you know, your guys' support. I want to ask a question, if I can, Gabriel. You identified at the start of the podcast as non-binary. Yeah. I'm, I'm keen to understand what that means for you. And given that young people in uh, the alphabet mafia, as you put it, um, there's a copyright issue around that second word we'll talk about <laughs> offline as an Italian-Australian. But what I do want to know is, you know, this concept of coming out and sometimes coming out more than once yep. um, is unique to um, the queer community. It's not like I ever had to tell anybody what my gender and preference was. I didn't have to explain it to anybody. It was assumed, so I never had to come out. Um, and I think it's quite cruel, actually, and, and I'm hoping that, you know, we can sit here in 10 years' time and say that's an archaic practice that doesn't happen anymore. But let's talk about your journey. What does non-binary mean to you, and, and what was that journey to recognition like? Yeah, so I'll go back a little bit. So I was born in the early 90s, so I think coming out, I, I think that comes under maybe... Gen Y, is that correct? From the early yep, 90s? Yep, yep, yep. yep. So, and I come from kind of working class Britain uh, before I immigrated to Brisbane um, when I hit kind of my teens. Um, and so we talk about language for a second. I didn't really know much about, I guess, let's just simplify it for a second and go into, you know, homosexuality or the queer scope. You know, the language at that time was very minimal through the 90s and the early 2000s. There really was no language around that to understand. Yeah. So by the time that I became maybe 13 and hormones kicked in, it was very, it was very clear to me from the get-go that I knew that I was at least physically attracted to men. So within my own identity, the only language I really understood at that time would be, I guess, gay or homosexual. Right. However, what didn't really work for me, and I probably knew this around seven or eight, is that I always knew that I was I was seeing things very creative. So I was seeing things a little bit different and you add that in with the sex, two different things, but you know, they all kind of blur in what what are those differences. And by the time that I was in my you know, teens, I would actually reference the 80s and the 80s pop culture to the androgynous period where I, I felt most connected because I wasn't connecting with the rare few people that were out and let's say, you know, cis white homosexual men, I just seemed to not be able to connect with. And a lot of my homosexual friends were actually POC. 
And as I got older and about to the age of maybe 16, 17, I wrote a poem. And in that poem, I, I wrote a line that says, I'm neither here or there, yet I am both. And at this time, non-binary, the term I'd never heard of. So it wasn't until maybe three or four years ago that the language had caught up to my internal feeling. And then I was like, now I have a word. So I moved into that genderqueer and the non-binary space. But it's not that it's because I wasn't, because I always was. I just didn't have any contextual understanding of what it was. So, yeah, it was like being isolated, even within being the minority that I had to present. And what's interesting about me in particular, depending on what I'm wearing, is that so to the external world, I, would, I was presenting as, let's say, a gay man, and then you push back onto that. And then there's other times that I was presenting when people would put me into the trans category, and then I'm getting pushed back, purely depending on maybe my wardrobe or, you know, my energy on that day. Yeah. Sorry, I I might jump in there. Yeah. Because one of the things that you talked about there, Gabriel, that I find really fascinating, and it is a big change, is this idea of challenging the masculine and the feminine as a social construct rather than something that is um, inherently biological. And I do think that that's a concept. So we talk about change. In the last 30 years, I think we are absolutely categorically seeing that concept being challenged because culturally it's a very Western concept. And Matt and I have often talked about those archetypes when I was a kid, like Tarzan, John Wayne, uh, Steve McQueen, um, these very real American, you know, celluloid archetypes of masculinity. And then these really quite uh, very feminine types like the Doris Days, Garland O'Hara in Gone with the Wind was the first time that I think I remember seeing um, a bit of a hardcore feminine on the screen that was very much feminine, but almost seemed as a little duplicitous because there was some masculine energy there. Whereas we realize now, if we look at kids at the moment, and I, I, I think I've said I've got a seven-year-old daughter, there is a real departure from this idea of boys and girls things and there are just things. And because of that, I believe there's a lot of freedom. Do you find it? Uh, have you seen a change in that kind of conceptual, you, you talk about your own community still having some hang-ups around masculine, feminine, but are you seeing broader community um, leaning into androgyny like they did in the 80s again? Because I think it's probably the most androgynous time we've had. Yes, I'd say in the last maybe three years in particular, that's, you know, and I think, again, I'll go back to pop culture, helping that along the way, um, just with exposure on, you know, video clips with artists. Um, But I always remember when people would talk to me, they would be like, ah, you know, are they, let's go back five, six years ago, are they ladies' boots? And I would always reply, they're my boots. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it was always, and then you see their brains kind of ticking away where now people would say, you know, nice dress or nice jacket. And it seems to be less, you know, this is from this section of that store and people still kind of genderizing an item that clearly belongs to me. Um, And I guess that going back to my point of social exposure, the reason we need social exposure exposure because it brings i guess i don't want i don't like this word but it brings a normality or a familiarity and i guess Mm. that's what hard right really want to stop they don't want things to become familiar or because it becomes okay and yeah so it, it is interesting like watching from my experience versus watching the general experience and like i said like sexuality and gender is so complicated because obviously your sex and your gender and your preference lie in different fields and you know now we're not just ticking this box this box and you know bisexual was you know the third which was so scandalous back in you know 2001 you know bisexual you'd hear that classic phrase of people saying even though i heard family members back then say you know don't be greedy pick a side but we're (laughs) Yeah, you know, right. we're way we're way beyond that. You know, we're talking about the pansexuals, the asexuals, and it's just fabulous watching. Mm. You know, not just within the community, but the broader scope. Mm-hmm. Discuss this. I think oh. I really like this idea. Sorry, friend. I think I really like this idea of like a conceptual development or conceptual change that we've seen come into the mainstream in our society more recently. Because I think it speaks a little bit to the work that like. 
I don't know if I want to say academia, but at least like theory can play in uh, initiating social change. I watched a fascinating YouTube video just the other day that was talking a bit about some old school feminist literature from kind of the 60s and 70s. And one of the big critiques that it was making about this literature was that it seemed to take for granted the kind of binary, um, biological sex is gender, male, female, um, based on your genitals, that kind of thing. And this kind of video made the comment I thought it was really interesting that like maybe we could give the author of this the benefit of the doubt because the kind of philosophy and sociology and the kind of academia of their time hadn't yet investigated and addressed the social construction of gender beyond the biological um the video then went on to kind of say no i don't want to give them that credit because the 30th anniversary edition with the foreword didn't do anything to comment about those kind of more modern developments and changes that we've done but i thought it was super interesting to say that like as a society, we do have like intellectual work to be done to look at the way things are socially constructed, to look at that thing, at, the, at those ideas, and then to incorporate them into the way we as individuals work in a society, and then to change our language, and then to say, oh, if gender is a social construct, then we shouldn't be persecuting people who identify differently or whatever. And, and then like we have this kind of crossover between theory and action. And I think this might be quite an interesting example of the way change is initiated by that. I, I might jump in there, Matt, because I, I take a I take a view on this looking out in mm. in that the idea that the actual battleground at the moment is that intellectual space. Mm. Yeah, I think um, Gabriel rightly said that essentially there is a cohort of people in society that pick a minority to punch down on because it gives them more credibility with uh, people in their sphere of influence. Mm. And I think the biggest issue is they are trying to stifle an intellectual debate. And what they do is they label the debate very leftist, where it's not a leftist debate at all. Gender is not about left or right. It's about humanity. Mm. And it's about the idea, Gabriel, before we started, spoke about the idea that in the 70s, so when I was born, I was born in 1974, around about that time, 76 was the Stonewall riots in America, 78 was the first, as I, I, I might be corrected on this, was the first uh, protest march in Sydney, which has become Mardi Gras. Um, and there are politicians at the time, you know, the Harvey Milks of this world that came out as openly gay and tried to um, create civil... Uh, uh, civil change um, through dialogue, through political effort. And um, Gabriel rightly pointed out that the first global pandemic we experienced was the AIDS crisis that then got flipped into demonising the LGBTQI plus community. I'm old enough, and we've talked about it on this podcast, Gabriel. Mm. I was was a child when the Grim Reaper ads uh, came out and um, it created the most us and them fear that you've ever seen. So it went from mainstream culture sort of having to accept diversity to then absolutely demonising that diversity um, and saying that anybody in the LGBTQI plus community was a death sentence. They were a pariah. They were a leper. It was a plague. Um and we know that's wrong. We know that's an absolute lie. Even that ad campaign that won awards at the time has been demonised now as a real hate program. Mm. Probably not its intent. But how in your lifetime have we moved past that, Gabriel? Because that's the 80s. You were born in the 90s. Yeah. What's changed since then? Because it's like it regressed from the 70s into the 80s because of the AIDS pandemic. And if anybody wants to see what that was like and you've got the stomach for it, some shows like Pose really do demonstrate how the LGBTQI plus community was was demonised and villainised at the time. It was actually their own community that helped right the wrongs of the AIDS crisis and, and mm-hmm. deliver real hope back to the community. Um, we could talk about that. That's that's a series of episodes in itself. But how how is coming out of that into... 2022 being for you, Gabriel, what have you noticed? Let's talk about Australia for a second. 
if we talk about HIV and we talk about AIDS, uh, I guess now with PrEP and PEP, which is medication designed rather as a preventative or post-infectious, you know, within those 72 hours to take something that could eliminate the uh, HIV virus. I had a very interesting experience maybe four, three, four years ago when I was trying to uh, get access to this medication. And I remember speaking with fellow people in the community and I was like, oh, there's this tablet and we can take it daily and it can help prevent um, the spread of, you know, uh, HIV. And the reason... I think why it's such a touchy subject is if you go into high school, I had no education. I had no sex education. You know, I understood that there was this scary thing from being from where I was from without any understanding. It's not that scary once I understood it, but I had had to Google. So I'm on Google. I'm looking at, you know, what is HIV? What is AIDS? What's the difference? How does it affect one? And I, I was terrified. I was I was absolutely terrified on top of being, you know, in a very awkward position where at the time I couldn't even get, you know, people like me weren't allowed to get married or, you know, couldn't really discuss our sex at school. Like there was no say, and what, what was I supposed to go to my heterosexual parents and be like, Hey, let's talk about sex. Um, of course not. So, or at least I wasn't going to. So as I got older now I'm on this medication and I remember talking to a, a, a gay friend of mine and I said to him, I said, did you know there's this pill? And he says, what would you mean? I said, yeah, we can take it. So then I go on this adventure to try and access this medication. And I have to say, I think I had to get to like three or four doctors. And yeah. I had one doctor in Brisbane look at me when I asked and brought it up. And she looked me in the face and she said, it's not just willy nilly. And I remember I was sitting in the car and I think maybe, you know, and I just, and she said, it really took me a second because I was like, oh, wow. You know, and when I finally got the medication in Melbourne, actually in Paran, at one of a great clinic there that kind of specializes. I was like, yeah, fantastic. So we fast forward to today, you know, and the fantastic about this program is every three months, long story short is I get my tests, they check, da, 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 da. Anyway, with my last checkup, they just told me, due to funding, you can't just go to any clinic. You have to go to a hospital to get your bloods. And I thought, this is crazy. This is crazy that it's so difficult to get this drug that can, what, potentially eliminate, you know, it doesn't make sense to me. You know, they talk about progression, but yet they continuously, when it comes to budget cuts, I had to go to Roma Street in Brisbane to this rundown. I mean, God bless them. It's an amazing clinic, but they've had cuts for years. That was the first clinic I ever went to. And it was this terrifying building, being 18, walking up to this old building, you know, thinking. And then 10 years later from there, I'm getting told that there's budget cuts so we can't go to your local, you know, to get the bloods done. It doesn't make sense to me. It's like, why? Why? You want us to do better. You want to, but yet society will blame a community for something. And then we're 20, 30 years post. And yet there's obstacles in our way just to do the right thing. So I don't know. I know that was a bit all over the shop. But no, 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 it's yeah. not at all. And I think what I, because I, I, I hear you say it and it makes me mad. And the reason it makes me mad is um, essentially I would have thought we'd evolve because of the science and what we know about HIV and AIDS, we would have evolved beyond blaming people. But it was only two weeks ago or three weeks ago that the New South Wales Health Minister came out in discussion of monkeypox and specifically made a point of saying, if you are gay, bi, or have a man that has sex with men, you need to be vigilant and go and get tested around this. And that was it. It was no context. of, And the reason that they were saying it is because um, individuals had gone to a pride festival in Spain where they believe there was a super spreader event. Monkeypox is not sexually transmitted. It was proximity. Um, But again, it was really quick to vilify Mm. people by not saying stuff, by not giving context. Um, And I find it really fascinating when we start to talk about how easy it is to punch down on a minority because if they said... Asian people or black people or Italian Australian people, people would be up in arms. Mm. People would be would be losing their mind because civil rights in a way has sort of predated some of that for other communities. I believe everybody's still marginalized. We know that from Black Lives Matter. We have talked about that on this show. Mm. I think the issue for me becomes um, the reason it makes me mad to hear Gabriel's experience of that is we could eradicate HIV in a generation. Because PrEP 
and pep and the the cocktail that allows it to be um, uh, positive but undetectable. I, don't, I think I'm saying yeah. that right, Gabriel. We yeah. could eliminate it globally in a generation. Yes. But we're not doing it. And in, the theory is because people don't want to put money into a subset of a community, in practice, it doesn't discriminate. So I think that this idea of Matt prefaces by saying in Pride Month, though I think in the 48 years of my life, things have moved forward. I think um, Gabriel's just given one great example of we continue to put in more hurdles for people in the LGBTQI plus community than I would have to go to. I could go into a clinic now and ask for erectile dysfunction medication. Okay, and the doctors would be super sensitive about the idea that, mm, you know, it's yeah. nothing to be ashamed of. I just yeah. want to point out to our listeners out there, it's not something I need. I'm Italian. If I had that problem, I'd eat a bowl of spaghetti. It's just that simple. Wait, what? But I'm not, or a good sandwich. Okay, that no, keep going. Sandwich. I don't want to stop on this. No, please continue. He's going to take that out. Gabriel, he'll take that out just so, you know, we won't get the bowl of spaghetti. But I could walk into a clinic and get erectile dysfunction medication. I could walk into a clinic and say I'm having an issue with my prostate and they'd bend over backwards to make sure there was no stigma related to that. If I walked in and said I want to talk about PrEP, because I have random sex with a lot of people, I reckon I'd have an easier time than Gabriel that's identifying it as part of their experience. And I would say, I, I have read plenty of articles that said if we wanted to do better by society, particularly around HIV, anybody of a sexually consenting age should consider PrEP. That's correct. I actually think this year was the first time that it was more prevalent in, I guess, quotations, heterosexual. Absolutely. Um, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, it's fascinating. And I talk to predominantly a lot of my, you know, lady female friends who uh, have intercourse with men and a lot of the time even in the last 10 years in 15 years even i forget how old i am but you know like we discuss you know um, condoms or protection and a lot of the time if they talk about not using protection one of the first things they'll say don't worry i'm on the pill you know as in i won't get pregnant and i'm always like yeah but we you know what about the stis what about you know hiv and i find talking to a community and my heterosexual like or friends they seem to be there's i have this kind of old maybe and i am getting over it but fear in me and it's and it's not a fear that i i feel is instinctive i feel like it was a taught fear of you know there's something continuously wrong yep. with me and there's this thing and it was and i had to get out of that of myself and go no there's nothing wrong with even if i got the virus with today's you know, mm. there's nothing wrong with that. And there's plenty of people that are born with the virus and it's not this evil, this evil thing that yeah. they, but that's what we were told or we're told continuously, there's something wrong with you. You're different. You're strange. And when you hear that over and over and over, over again, it, you know, it takes a, it takes a lot to get out of that and not believe it. And I just want to go back and make a, a point about me being who I am and having my journey. I still hold even a privilege just purely because of my race and I, it's it, it's sickening and I just want to kind of shout out to the community that I'm very aware that even within us we there's intersectional issues and we're treated different because of mm. because of those things there's yeah. no doubt there's a there's a sad concept um in sociology called the less dead so if you hit the trifecta of being a person of color trans and transient you are far less likely to have any crimes against you investigated. Mm. Uh, and they are the easiest people in society to murder and get away with. That, that's just statistically correct. There's no doubt yeah. about it. Uh, it's a sad statistic. And, and that's in the Western world. I, I find it interesting, though, one of the things that I, uh, in the change in my life, the thing that I've grappled with from the outside in is this idea of moving past the idea of gay and straight. It's been really complex because um, I've met pansexual, AFAB, so that's a pansexual assigned female at birth individual that I've done work with. Yep. Um, I've, uh, I know asexual people, which that was really fascinating doing treatment with. The big one for me, which is getting more and more traction at the moment, 
is something that's been around for a long time, but it's in the trans community. It's female to male transition. I had no idea about that when I was a kid, yep. you know? Um, so assigned female at birth and transitioning to live their life as a man because that's their gender identity. You know, I'm nearly 50. Gender is a, a struggle for me insofar as it keeps changing. And I do believe it changes as we become more aware. But it also makes sense to me that gender was always going to be all the colours in the crayon box, not just the black one and the white one. Mm. And do you think do you think that's scary to the community? Because I think that's the bit where people really start to worry. Like maybe if the, all the colours in the crayon box are available to us, then maybe I'm not as black and white as I thought. Yes, a hundred percent. Because that that black and white is taught, right? Mm-hmm. So if it was as simple or as simple as everyone is heterosexual or other, let's just put it, let's just simplify, even though it's yeah. not. But we realise that a lot of people are five or ten percent curious, or actually they do a little bit like this, or maybe mm-hmm. they want to have that on that day and an apple right. one day and a pear the next, and they realise, hold on a second, if I can do and be with whoever I want and get out of their head, out of shame, then the community would be dramatically bigger and possibly not a minority it sounds like a little bit outrageous but i actually believe that taught heterosexuality is what holds holds the numbers you know because you know i don't want to get into it but religion holds a lot of power over that absolutely there is no doubt about the intersection of religion and traditional stereotypes of gender and i one of the things we've talked about on this podcast gabriel matt's younger than you and a lot younger than me his is the generation and the generation that is coming into adulthood now that has the most liberty to say, I eat pears some days, I eat apples other days, I'm a big fan of bananas. Um, I don't know what Matt's journey with that is like, and I'm not even going to ask, but the reality is, as a psychologist, I am well aware. I have seen people in their 70s, uh, and there's one client in particular I think of that lived a life of misery because at the age of 14 they recognise they're attracted to men yeah, and then lived a very, in their words, normative heterosexual life with a wife and kids and had a breakdown when, and it was a, it was a, a bizarre breakdown. I've got to be careful of the details, but had a, had a breakdown when the individual's son started dating a non-binary partner. And it wasn't a breakdown because of struggling to deal with the son's uh, liberties, it was the regret, the shame, the remorse of not trying to be braver and, and live that life. So if anybody thinks this is new, they're nuts, by the way, I think that, and I can say that as a psychologist. <laughs> Clinically, well, they're nuts. Do you know, do you know if you've hit a nail on the head there, and this is what I say to people, like, let's move away from the 80s and let's go all the way back and we go, especially First Nation people and yep. culture, if you look at a little island culture or people that still really hold those, old, you know, old old values and stories, the third gender or different forms of transgender have literally been around with them yeah, since they don't. The two spirit. Correct. So this is not new. It's just me at all. It's and it has always a hundred percent been around. And that's why I find personally I've met people from these cultures and my friends, it's a convers- it's less of a conversation that I even have to have or explain because they already have it in their core. They have it in their tradition, in their in their language. And in their language it may just be as simple that some languages don't genderize. Yeah. And then we go back on the other end where they're just like you said, they're simply there's over sixty countries where it's illegal and quite frankly you're probably gonna get killed. Oh, if, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. In the in the framework of change, I think it's super interesting how we have a discussion about like how old and how like original these these identities are because i in many ways like, i absolutely agree with you Gary, you're absolutely right these things have been around forever but i feel like we're pressured to prove that they've been around forever because the the kind of dog whistle that's used by by discriminatory commentators is that it's new and scary and dangerous and because it's new we don't have to respect it and so we push back against that by saying no it's not new it's been around forever look at all these other communities look at all these other cultures but 
there's a part of me that doesn't even want to engage with that discussion says it doesn't matter like these people feel this way this is this is real and genuine and authentic we shouldn't have to prove that these identities have been around for x thousands of years for them to be validated um and and so i I find it such an interesting discussion in the context of change because because we like to think that oh yeah if something's been around forever it's more valid but um if we think about the way things have changed well now we're now we're having to call back on that history to to try and reassert value when I think that's not even necessarily the kind of fairest way to go about things, which I think is super interesting. And I, I think there's a, a, the entitlement that they they don't want to respect. Like, I think there's that power adjusting of knowing that you can, in a way, politically or directly disrespect someone because they don't have the same voice or that's impact right. as you. And yeah. I've experienced that in multiple, in multiple ways. And at the end of the day, the people at the top look a certain way mm. and... You know, there's a reason for that. And they're scared. It's scary when you have, especially I feel like your age bracket with, you know, TikTok and language, where there's a whole generation that are like, absolutely not. And if you look at Australia, look at our last election, look what's going on. Mm. You know, people are wanting, we got wanted more women, we got more women. We were sick and tired, you know, like, what are we, what's the biggest, hottest topic that we can discuss in parliament? Oh, let's talk about the children. You know what we should do? Let's use this time to, you know, knock down the queer kids. Well, that didn't work because ultimately there are a lot of people that just have hearts and they they realize that mothers, aunties, uncles, all of the above are now learning from their children. Like me, I'm almost 30. So their children could be my age, their children could be 20. They're listening. Mm. They they, want to learn. They're they're evolving. And now, because that's happening, you've got 50-year-olds, you know, that are, uh, you know, woke to this new... So look at the numbers. The numbers go up and the people at the top find that scary. So what do it you is, It is the allyship. It's something I, in my own experience, if you don't mind me sharing, is when yeah. the same-sex marriage bill um, yes. was, was debated. It was the first time in my life where I sat down with my parents. My dad was in his 80s, my mum late 70s, and they talked about how they were voting to vote yes. And I asked my dad, so this is a man in his 80s from a Roman Catholic tradition, you know, you're comfortable voting yes. He said, yeah, it's, it's no one's business. Mm. Why, why, why are we still talking about this? Mm-hmm. You know, like as if to say, what the fuck is this a vote for? Just say yes and be done with it because whose business is it who you marry? And I found that I know that's not the attitude for allyship, but in its own way, it's. I think the prevailing attitude is live and let live. I think that's a really Australian thing. And I think nobody cares in real terms about stuff that a small minority of people behind church pulpits and, mm. and right-wing politics try to make an issue. I think most Australians would say, who gives a shit how many boxes you tick for gender? Doesn't, doesn't worry me. I'm not scared that Gabriel's gender is going to influence my child to be something else. The same way that all the mainstream stuff that Gabriel digested didn't change their journey. Mm, Correct. Right? So if you could program kids in the gender, Gabriel is an example of a system that failed people. (laughs) That's right. I think, though, Fred, that the thing that worries me is people, I absolutely agree with you, people don't care about that until there's someone out there that makes them care about it. Right until yeah. there's this this shock jock, this person who says the kids will suffer, and then they come up with some crazy bullshit statistic or whatever. And I think that's what's so interesting in this kind of back and forth of change is that there is there's this agenda that people push, as you say, to punch down on people because yeah. it gives them authority or power to change society. I feel like this general sense of people do have a heart; they just want to let and li- let and let live gets challenged when you have people out there kicking up a big fuss about it, which I find so interesting. I, I think it's remarkable that the people that would make the loudest noise have the most to hide Mm. and they fear losing power the most i once heard somebody talk about the concept of a republic in australia and that if we wanted to get a republic right the first head of state needed to be an indigenous queer woman right okay and break every stereotype at once I think there's a lot of homophobia in society. There still is. But I think that it is possible to eradicate it if we understood that allyship meant not allowing others to punch down. Mm. 
because we see it with disability now. We just saw it in the last election. The NDIS was an issue and the disabled community, and I will say to Gabriel's point, the carers, the parents, the cousins, the aunties, the uncles said, no, 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 no. You don't get to pull any more money out of this. I don't know anything about Gabriel's journey, but I know that I don't see any more or less worth in anybody because of how they identify with gender and sexual preference. And by the way, I think that the biggest issue is if religions didn't demonize sex, you couldn't demonize gender. If that makes sense, this, this archaic Roman Catholic concept that sex before marriage is bad and you'll go to hell is the biggest con of all time because it allows us to punch down on anything that we think is deviant to that concept. Gabriel, what do you think about that? I mean, guilt and fear are two main tools really that push hatred, you know, like a baby is not born hating anything, you know, I was just thinking about, you know, how fantastic is that we just got our first first nation judge in Mm, Australia. And I was, you know, and I think, you know, how outrageous that it took, this long but how fantastic that it's begun and you know again going back to my earlier point seeing these changes and like you know so let's use the drag queens by taking the drag queens away they think they can eliminate that exposure and all that exposure is is to difference what they what they are eliminating is how do we make things demonize or do we eliminate it so it's not even an option Mm -hmm. because that option is bad that option is lesser than so i don't know it's all very interesting but can i ask a question of you gabriel just you as a as a human you are giving your thoughts to a 15 year old now that is exploring who they are as a person yep what would you as a as an emerging elder of your community say to that 15 year old how would you help them navigate what you went through and all that trauma and turmoil that it caused you for no real reason. I'm not minimizing it, but it's all bullshit. You know, we're in 2022, (laughs) you know, it's, uh, we want it gone by 2030. That's a good agenda. If we can get rid of climate change, we can get rid of homophobia and all of that discrimination people. What would you you tell them? I think, you know, let's go simplify. I didn't have anyone, and that was one of the key issues for me. I didn't have anyone to look up to, so by the time I was literally... And I I, I was me very early on, and I was literally one of the only people that was out at my time. And by the time I graduated, I had such a presence in my high school that people in year 10 were like, oh, we can do that. And I saw it happen at at my school from that shift. But what I would tell them is, number one, safe. You need to find a safe place. So you need to find that safe people that you can talk to. And ultimately, just you are loved, you are worthy, and you are enough. And that sounds so simplistic, but again, like we're continuously told that we're not. And the fact, like when the vote for marriage came up, and I keep laughing, and I think it's just this nervous, like post laugh from trauma, but it, it, it's, it's watching people have a say from being inside it was one of the most bizarre. And this is why people feel like they can have an opinion because they, active, they actively got given a say and it just seemed so bizarre to me that why i'm not asked it's just my my wedding if i choose to get married yeah i I, didn't need your permission to get married why do you need mine yeah so it was very odd it was a very odd experience and seeing that so you were you can't you're continuously reminded you know and hate crime is very much still a real thing and i could probably name at least two times that i would scale that that was a hate crime versus the time that i have just literally been attacked and so i would recommend a safe space number one you get that safe person and no question is a dumb question if you Mm. need to speak speaking telling your story because it's like i can tell you five things that i did that i definitely didn't need to do and you save yourself like you would you know tell your kids you know if they have advice you look from your own experience and be like you know don't don't waste your time with that because it just it's just heartbreak so i try and be as transparent and honest as i can and i always just remind them well you know at the end of the day this is my experience and this is just my opinion but ultimately it's not written stone i just yeah so i think having conversations and being open because i just didn't have anyone to have those conversations with Mm. yeah matt has anybody reached out to you around these issues has anybody in your peer group sat down and said i just want to give you a bit of a rundown on what's going on for me at the moment i'm definitely not someone who would uh 
be a port of call for people who are going through, I think, those specific um, concerns with their identity because I am quite cishet. Um, but I have plenty of friends who do have those experiences with their identity. And I think that there's a handful of things that stand out to me. One is the role the internet can play for particularly younger people, I think, um, in creating that specific safe place that you were talking about, Gabriel. I think it's fascinating the role anonymity can play in putting yourself out there, exploring who you might be, finding like-minded people. Um, I think that's a huge deal. And, and we're talking about how this community of non-normative identities might be punched down upon because perhaps they have less power in society. Well, the internet is an incredible way to democratise that power by saying everyone who steps on the internet in many ways has equal authority, has equal power. Um, And as we spread that message, more people become more knowledgeable about it and perhaps thus more compassionate about it, develop a better language to talk about it, um, all those kind of things. So for me, I do think the internet is quite a significant kind of like tool that can be used to achieve a lot of those things that you just talked about there, Gabriel. So that's probably my like addition to that, I guess. And Netflix has all these shows. How fabulous. I didn't have any shows. I think maybe yeah, we right. had Carlson, you know, from the original Queer as Folk. We had Carlson. The people that I ever saw on TV as, as a child or reference. And then actually, i tell you one thing for me that absolutely I love and helped me more, you know, was Will and Grace because... I would watch these, you know, characters and they would go on dates and they would have conversations and it wasn't dark or kind of like hidden and dirty and it gave me hope because it there was a period where everything felt so secretive and you know so shame and it was just a, so now with all these queer shows and literature and you know mm. which has been around but was you know they tried to get rid of for centuries mm. um yeah I think that's a super interesting place to uh, to kind of conclude a conversation about um, change because that's maybe one of the kind of big cultural shifts we've had is at least in many ways this kind of stuff has come into the mainstream. Fred, did you want to say something before I wrap up here? I, I'd like to live in a world where they cast a non-binary James Bond. Okay, Ooh. That to me is where we start to say, wow, isn't that a little interesting? And isn't that a great movie? And isn't this archetype of this smart, ass-kicking, you know, spy more about what's in between their ears than what's in between their legs? Mm-hmm. And that's really where I want to get to. I, I Before we finish, I want to ask you both a question. Um, should we be teaching gender diversity early? Do you want to go, Matt? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, I think we teach heteronormativity very early. Um, and I think that children are in the best place to kind of absorb like compassionate and authentic messages because they haven't yet had a lot of the baggage and a lot of the shame and a lot of that guilt put on them yet would be my kind of my kind of pitch. Um, I think children are really clever. Like I feel like as a society we we look down sometimes on what children can do, but if you talk to children in the right way and you and you engage with them appropriately, children can be really clever. They can engage with really complicated and important topics because for some ways it's maybe not quite so complex for them. People are who they are, and and if they if they feel that way, then kids are quite quite often quite happy to accept that. So I think maybe you know I have some problems with the way we formally teach things like sex sex ed. I think that formalized teaching can have its problems, but I absolutely think that younger children should at least be made aware of the diversity of the world because it's an authentic diversity that I think they can absolutely absorb. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you know it's not going anywhere now that we've pushed into this new space. I feel they're gonna. You know, as soon as they hit what is it, thirteen? For they're on the TikTok, right? Yeah, it's there. So it's like it hiding it is a lot harder. So I think you know why not? And it's really interesting because I don't think I've ever had a, a child come up to me or a baby and be like, you know, boy or girl. But the amount of times I, I laugh because I take it as a compliment to be quite frank. But you know, people come up to me and they'll have this face and they'll be like, like, are you a boy or are you right, a girl? Right. Because they just need some. They need that box to somehow. Because then once they know they're going to, in their head, subconsciously or consciously, they're going to rank me into wherever they need to put me yeah. and how they're about to treat me with the next the next statement. I, 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 from my own experience, have had a conversation with my daughter who said such and such has three mums. Being a psychologist, I said, what do you think about that? And she said, how awesome is that? You just get hugs all the time. Oh. Fantastic. And that to me was why I think I think there is no complexity to it. I think kids get should 
get every right. And I think if we we want to eradicate hate, we start early. And the one thing I would say to those people that would say you shouldn't expose kids to it is you can't program them to be something that they're not forever. So this fear that exposure means that there's a great queer explosion in society is such bullshit. Science doesn't support it. Sociology doesn't support it. Gabriel's pointed out anthropology doesn't support it. Just get over yourselves. You people got too many. Don't we have other things to worry about Mm -hmm. that we got to pick on people for no reason? And it's the picking on people that pisses me off the most, you know? Leave the drag queens alone. Leave the trans community <laughs> alone. Leave people of colour alone. Pick on each other if you want, because then at least it's a fair fight, mm. you know. But don't punch down on people, because then people like me get upset. You don't want that, you know. <laughs> Guys, I want to thank you both today. I will say the one thing I've heard you talk about today that is a huge difference is this idea of sex education of any type in school. Um, the only thing I ever heard in school about sex is if you do it, you'll go to hell. So mm. I just want you to know there's a there's a long way to go. But I tell you what, in in the difference in our ages, the 18 year gap or 19 year gap, there was no discussion, particularly in the Catholic boys school. There's a lot of sex going on, but none that anybody talked about. Yeah. Um, I will say that this has been enlightening for me. I think we needed to listen more to Gabriel, but we always have opinions here, Gabriel. So you know, we get to engage. We might bring you back for other things, Gabriel, because I'd love your take on things like like the raving culture and stuff. Yeah. Matt is the most boring human <laughs> on the planet. He doesn't know anything about anything. You know, he's never seen a ball gag in his whole life. Oh, yeah, I, <laughs> I am, you know, I'm quite I'm quite open. So I mean I'd be I'd be honored to join you guys again. And thank you so much for having me and giving me a platform to, you know, speak and have a voice and I appreciate that. I think I learned a lot today. I, I, I'm so grateful that you got had the time to do it and I'm really proud of the fact that you're someone that I get to work with. I, I think if you want to make change, you've got to live it in your real life. And, you know, this should be, I believe, that where we work is a place that everybody should be because it reflects society. You know? yep. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Gabriel. Thank you, listeners. This has been another episode. might even be a two-part episode, depending on how we edit it, of If I Only Knew. Mm-hmm. Reach out, tell your friends, subscribe. The only thing that we want out of you guys is you to listen and subscribe. Because at some point, I want the Oprah money. Okay, I've told you this before. I'm not doing this just to talk into the wilderness. And don't rate the episodes that I'm not on higher than the ones that I am on. It hurts my feelings. Thank <laughs> Thanks you all, very guys. much, Fred. Enjoy Fantastic. Bye. See you guys. Bye. Thank you for listening. This podcast is a Better Pod Group production. With special thanks to our researcher, Nicola Binks, executive producer, Matt Blanche, the providers of our theme song with credits that are in our bio, and of course, you, the listener. It's important to remember that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Whilst there are therapeutic themes discussed, in no way is this podcast considered treatment, and in the event you're in a psychological emergency, please reach out in whatever way you can through 000 or Lifeline 13 11 14. It's important to remember that the discussion is for entertainment purposes, and the opinions voiced by podcast hosts are theirs and theirs alone. Any reference to copyright or copywritten material is, of course, the copyright of the copyright owner and or relevant corporate entities. Thank you for listening to Bed Pod Group Productions and tune in to some of our other excellent pod productions on this network.